the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. The drives one. We're back. It's the FSS Plus Podcast Future Stars Series. I'm Jason Churchill here with Joe Doyle. Casey Bellin has the day off, his first day off in 27 years. Uh, well, here we are, Joe. It's the winter meetings. Like, like this is this is this used to be, and it still is to some extent. It's it's a really interesting time of the offseason uh, that either is when and where some of the bigger deals occur, or it kind of spurs. Uh, those deals. So we haven't had a major transaction the last three or four days. We had a little flurry there about eight, 10 days ago. And this week it should pick up considerably. Do you expect the winter meetings themselves to be like super busy when it comes to big news? Or do you think it's going to be another setup like the last couple of years? Because you remember 10, 15 years ago when the winter meetings was like, you know, nine mega trades and most of the big free agents signed at the winter meetings, right? Oh yeah. No, I, uh, I, I, I miss those days. <laughs> Me too. It seems I like do. A lot of just social media. It's just a lot of social media smoke. Um, let's see. I think there's going to be a lot of mid market trades that take place. I think there's going to be a lot of moving of pawns and kind of positioning the board. I, I would be stunned if Yamamoto or Otani or Bellinger or any of the big ticket free agents sign here in the next even four or five days before like next Wednesday, next Thursday. But I do think, um, considering where the starting pitching market is, considering what teams need, I would be surprised if we didn't see some some pieces shuffled around the league. Yeah, you mentioned mid-level, kind of medium uh, pieces. You, are you thinking that's because teams are going to start learning they're not really in on Yamamoto, they're not really in on Otani, and maybe that they're not really willing to be in on Blake Snell or Eduardo Rodriguez or any of these other guys, so they start looking you know, at the trade route and some maybe mid-level uh, free agents teams. Cause it does sound like a lot of teams are balking at where Aaron Nola set the, the pitching market. There are, you know, you get Blake Snell 30, 31 years old. Do you want to give him seven years with his inconsistency? There are a lot of teams. There's some, it only takes one. I'm not saying he's not going to get his big deal because he's probably going to, but are you just kind of thinking yeah, think, that there are teams that are bowing out there just because they're like, nah, we're not doing that. I just, I think there's a lot of different ways to acquire starting, but the, you know, I said, I said mid-level, like mid-major types of trades. I, I, I kind of consider, and this is a, you know, this is a me thing. I kind of consider the Juan Soto trade to ultimately be like a mid piece. Uh, and I know that's going to be really even even though soto himself is not but because it's one year of soto and the cost is going to reflect more of a mid-level kind of a deal is that kind of how well i look at it this way like the the padres need so much pitching Mm -hmm. and you know teams like the blue jays have pitching to offer teams like the yankees have middling uh back end of the rotation controllable pitching to offer like i think juan soto could get moved in the next four days i would actually be a little bit surprised if he didn't, um, so p- pieces like that, you know, the the Mariners and the Rays trades have been kicked up quite a bit. I think that could get moved. Uh, I think Dylan Cease would obviously be a, a monstrous move uh, in terms of waves in the industry. But yeah, those are the types of things that 
I'm kind of expecting to happen. I think the trade market is going to heat up uh, over the next four days. You know, I it, it seems to me like a foregone conclusion that the Blue Jays are going to find a way to move Alec Manoa in some sort of a deal to bring back something. Mm. Uh, those are the types of deals, trades that I expect to take place uh, between now and probably Wednesday afternoon. Interesting. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, the draft lottery here. That's uh, one of the events at the winter meetings. Uh, also, want to touch on. Uh, you mentioned one just a second ago. Um, one thing that might surprise you if it did happen, one thing that might surprise you if it didn't, uh, I have a couple of my own, so we'll get to that. And I want to talk about the Astros a little bit as well. It's a really interesting team that not a lot of folks uh, are talking about right now, so I want to dig into that. But you mentioned Alec Manoa there, Joe. Uh, he was maybe the best pitcher in the American League in 2022, fell completely off planet Earth in 2023, from your perspective and folks that you've talked to and things that you've read and you dive into the numbers, uh, like what's the, what are the issues there? Because on the surface, you know, not to steal your thunder here, but on the surface, it seems like, well, it's conditioning, probably some level of an issue, uh, you know, velo down command down. Uh, but when you look at some of the underlying things, when you look at things like, you know, his active spin and things like he's still got it. So you would think, that there's a bunch of teams out there that would take a flyer on them. But my, my question here would be like one, what, what else do you see a, as an obstacle for Manoa to kind of get back toward what he was in 2022 and two, um, what is that worth in trade? What, how cheap is he going to be for clubs to acquire if Toronto puts him out? There? Well, my thing with Toronto is they've always seemed to be positioning themselves financially, right? They've always made trades over the last few years to move the needle, to keep themselves in a healthy zone with their payroll. And Alec Manoa is coming up on arbitration. Like he's he's mm. he's had an accomplished early career despite his 2023 struggles. So he's gonna get his first arb year is, is not gonna be cheap. And if Toronto has any hope of keeping Vlad and Bo in the future, and that's a conversation to be had down the line. I don't think there's any way that Alec Manoa fits into that equation. Uh, and and considering what this starting pitching market looks like, Manoa's been able to post some pretty significant innings totals based on uh, the amount of starts that he's had in 2021 and 2022. So in that respect, I think he's going to have some value. Now, the thing that I don't like, I'll just say that I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, he seems to wear hit by pitches like a badge of honor. You know, he led the league or he led the American League in 2021 in batters hit. He led the league in 2022 in batters hit. And in 2023, it was really, really bad for a very long time. I think hit by pitch uh, or batters hit per inning, he probably led the league, even though I don't have that pulled up right now. He had so, nine hit batters command, in 87 innings. Nine hit batters in 87 okay, innings. So, yeah, it's high. So, uh, yeah, he was on pace for another 20 batter hit uh, season. Uh, that That can't happen in today's age. Guys are throwing too hard. And he's injuring important players in this game. And he seems to shrug it off in a way that, you know, oh, it's just part of the game. I'm just pitching inside. Well, no, you're not. You can't pitch inside, Alec Manoa. You, you seem to not be able to handle that. So uh, commanding the fastball is something that has regressed. He's going to have to improve there. And uh, if the slider doesn't get the teeth that it had in 2021 and 2022, you know, maybe he's a guy that, um, has fallen victim to the sticky stuff type of thing because his mm -hmm. movement profile on that pitch has fallen by the wayside. 
So I think there's probably a team out there that looks at Alec Manoa, sees what he's set to make this year and next year and says, this is a pretty good bounce back candidate. Like, mm-hmm. like, I like this for, for innings. Uh, let's go get him. But to your point, I don't think there's any doubt Toronto would be selling low. But is is that relationship, you know, stressed at all beyond what you'd expect from a guy struggling to that level? I haven't read or heard anything in particular, but maybe you have that maybe they're just they just want to move on. Like it's like the relationship's not as good as it once was. Let's get him a, a clean slate, because a lot of times when that happens and, and we've seen that around the league, when we hear these oh, he needs a new voice. He needs, you know, a new environment, which I don't necessarily buy all the time, but, you know, sometimes it's legit. Is that also kind of part of this? Is that an element in this decision for Toronto to, to maybe put Manoa out there and take a lot less for him than they could have got a year ago? I, I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody in Toronto about that situation. I can only go off of what some of the other headlines were. You know, he didn't immediately report to mm-hmm. uh, Dunedin. He didn't immediately report to the complex. He I don't think he went missing. I think they kind of gave him a, hey, why don't you take a week, a week and a half, and just get away from the game for a little bit before he had to report back to rookie ball. Now, (laughs) being demoted to rookie ball has nothing to do with his performance. I mean, a lot of guys go down to rookie ball to work on some things. Uh, They just simply didn't think he could fix what was wrong at the AAA level. So I don't want to say that was like a – you know, relegate him to the lowest level as a punishment. It wasn't anything like that. But I think as a player, there's a there's a certain amount of embarrassment that probably comes along with with a, a demotion of that of that regard. And uh, sometimes that can break a relationship. So wouldn't surprise me, but I can't imagine that relationship between Manoa and the Blue Jays is as strong as it was you know, at this time last year. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I wonder if the, he's part of a bigger deal. But, you know, I got to tell you, as, as we're talking about this, the Dodgers make an awful lot of sense here. <laughs> you know, not that that's going to be their big pitching thing, and we can get to that in a little bit, but uh, the Dodgers have positioned themselves to spend money, so we expect them in on Otani and Yamamoto and and Dylan Cease and Corbin Burns and all that. But Alec Manoa, like this idea, just generally speaking, has Dodgers written off. I mean, they made uh, Tyler Anderson and Andrew Haney look good better than they've ever performed in any other uniform in their entire lives. The Dodgers did that. So Manoa's got Dodgers written all over it. I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how that, uh, that one winds down. That's an interesting one though. Toronto getting busy, maybe moving uh, Manoa to try to get a little bit back uh, to prepare them for uh, to 2024. I mean, you mentioned the Vlad Guerrero Bo Bichette thing too. Um, beyond money, if they can get even one piece back for Manoa that helps them acquire pitching and take advantage while they do have Vlad Guerrero and Bo Bichette, no matter how long they're actually going to keep them, it might make sense to do that. All right. So winter meetings, the draft really, lottery. Really quickly, go, ahead. go ahead, Joe. Really quickly, Jason. Before we move on, I, I want to throw a hypothetical at you, and it's a, it's a trade idea. Mm. Um, if, you're, if you're Baltimore, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's in division. So I don't think this ever happens. But if you're Baltimore, do you throw a Ryan Mountcastle for Alec Manoa deal out there? Toronto is looking for a bat. They need a bat. If I'm Baltimore for the next two minutes, Adley Rutschman for Alec Manoa done. No, I'm (laughs) obviously kidding. Um, That's an issue. Yeah, I would try to get involved because, you know, Baltimore is that, you know, ownership's not going to spend much. Uh, It it seems like that front office there is uh, – 
being asked to be, you know, basically the Rays to, to, to a very uh, uh, large extent, which uh, which isn't uncommon around the league, unfortunately. But there's only one Tampa Bay Rays. That's a unicorn, right? Uh, so we'll see how the Orioles kind of approach this. But that's a really interesting idea. Are you thinking somebody like a like a Mayo or or an Ortiz or somebody or a Cowser, somebody that aggressive or somebody a little further down? No, I'm thinking. Team? I'm thinking. Big league You're for big just league. I'm thinking Mount, Ryan, like a Mountcastle. Okay. Ryan Mountcastle for Alec Manoa. And Mountcastle and Vlad share first base DH in that scenario in Toronto. Is kind of how you're thinking yeah, about that. Exactly. Yeah. Assuming Brandon Belt doesn't come back. I mean, I think there's at right. bats for Mountcastle in mm-hmm. in Toronto, especially with the way that that roster kind of shapes up right now. What Merrifield isn't expected back, and I know they don't play the mm-hmm. same position, but I think Merrifield did DH some yeah, in 2023. Um, yeah, that's so, I don't know. Thought. It's it's an interesting. Yeah. It's you know. Fills a, Twin, fills a need the for tw- both teams. The Twins would be another one that would be interesting to me. Uh, losing Sonny Gray doesn't look like they're going to spend a bunch of money. They also lost Kenta Maeda. Uh, Tyler Malley is going to be out because he had surgery. They could use some pitching, so you would expect multiple moves at some level to some degree in Minnesota there and taking a, a flyer on Alec Manoa. And if they can turn him around, makes a big difference and probably makes the Twins the favorite in that division uh, again. Austin, uh, uh, well, I guess you, they've already made a trade, actually, Austin Martin, Simeon Woods Richardson, mm-hmm. they went over from Toronto. Uh is, is Yeah, that was the Barrio Walner. Right. Yeah, is is Matt Walner too much for Alec Manoa? There's a lot of holes in Walner's game, but he does one thing very well. Yeah, that's he an interesting one. He hits the ball very too. very very hard yes, and he's he had a good year. Yeah, he had a good year. He did. Uh, he had a good the year. The 30 34% strikeout rate or something mm-hmm. like that, but and you know, and he's on the older side of So major league but, average. <laughs> it's not, but it Yeah, feels I wonder like if that would be I wonder if that would be uh, that might be a little yeah. bit too much to give up, given Manoa's if, current state. But if again, I'm might if be I'm good. Toronto, I want Manoa going to the National League. But at the end of the day, I do want the best deal too. And if it's clearly a better deal, trading him to Baltimore, even in the division or or Minnesota, then I guess that's what I'm uh, that's what I'm going to do. But I would consider that. I, I I'd rather not trade him and face him you know, four times a year, you know, moving forward, uh, especially since what well, he's got four years of control left, not arb eligible until after next season. I'd be a little careful there who I trade him to as well. So that, that would certainly be a consideration. Alec Manoa, this is a really interesting conversation because man, he was good in 2021 and 2022. Maybe we should have seen some of this coming because the, uh, his strikeout rate between 21 and 22 sunk by 5% down to 22%. And then it sunk again and his, uh, his delivery went, you know, uh, to Cape Horn for crying out loud. It was, uh, that was bad. <laughs> interesting, uh, interesting conversation there. Uh, Alec Manoa with the Blue Jays. Uh, all right. MLB draft lottery, Joe. This is right up your alley. Um, that's, uh, I believe that's Tuesday. They're going to do the, the, the actual lottery is going to happen around three thirty Eastern, I believe. And we're going to see the results on television at five thirty Eastern, which is weird. Um, do you got thoughts on thoughts on the draft lottery bef- before that comes? Cause we, we have no idea. Like we know what the chances are and we know what the implications are, but from a, from a draft quality standpoint and a, and a, uh, you know, the implications of getting a top six pick this year, the implications of the eight for the A's and the angels and the white Sox and teams like that. Uh, what do you got on the draft lottery for Tuesday? Uh, I mean, seven, seven months out from the draft, there seems to be a, uh, at least it's it's early, but there seems to be a pretty big cliff after the first three picks. I'm sure that there's going to be a player or two that rise and make that, 
you know, four or five range, a better buffer zone. But right now, you know, it's Nick Kurtz, it's Travis Bazana, it's JJ Weatherholt. Um, not, <laughs> that's two second basemen and a first baseman. So inherently, that's not a great look for the draft. But um, I think if you land a top three pick in this in this draft, you're you're sitting pretty. And um, I, I think there's a conversation to be had that, you know, with with some of the new collecting collective bargaining agreement um, draft penalties. I think there's a case to be made at picks four, five, and six that you don't want one of those picks. I'll I'll use some examples here. So last year, 2023, this last draft was the first year of the draft under the new collective bargaining agreement. Um, Small market teams or or collective uh, collective bargaining tax, collective revenue tax, what am I trying to say? CBT uh, receivers, people, teams that receive money uh, from revenue sharing, if they... Uh, I'm picking the top six two years in a row. They're knocked down to number 10 in the draft uh, the third year. And the other side of that is large market teams, payers. uh, They're knocked down to pick 10 like the Washington Nationals were this year um, or this upcoming year, uh, just after one year. So looking at how this draft shakes up, Jason, um, Oakland, who has the best odds to land the number one pick of any team in this draft, if they land anywhere in the top six, they will not pick until at least pick 10 in 2025 which is already being considered a better draft a healthier draft Mm -hmm. Um, some other small market teams that are that are at risk the pirates picked in the top three they're currently projected to land the eighth pick Um, but if they land in the top six they fall to number 10 in 2025 so those are the two small teams that i'm watching thinking you know especially the pirates like wouldn't you rather have the seventh or eighth pick than the fifth or sixth pick this year i just considering what 2025 looks like. And then the other side of this, and I know I'm kind of uh, going on a tangent here, the large market teams. The large market teams in this one are the the payers. They're the ones that are really interesting to me because the Chicago White Sox are supposed to land the fourth pick. The Cardinals are supposed to land the fifth pick and the Angels are supposed to land the sixth pick. If any one of those teams land a top six pick, they will fall to at least pick 10 in 2025 the Mets Mm -hmm. are an interesting case I'll get to them in a minute but I I talked to some folks earlier this week in front offices analysts people that handled the draft within some of those teams they don't want to land a top six pick they would if there's a member of the White Sox front office that would rather pick eighth than have the fourth pick in 2024 I mean I think that says a lot about not only the draft in 2024 but also the penalties that that come along with it would you rather pick fourth this year and you know 10th or 11th next year or eighth this year and potentially with how bad the white Sox could be in 2024 mm-hmm. one or two you know yeah in that's true because so, this plays into the conversation we we're just right? having we're talking about pitching getting traded and if, if the white Sox, who um you know, like mike clevenger's not going to be back uh they decline the option on tim anderson they're shopping dylan cease Eloy Jimenez is yeah. available. Teams are calling about Andrew Vaughn. Maybe, maybe, maybe they do something with Luis Robert coming off a career year and having played 140 plus games for the first time. Uh, you're right. That that's a that's a good point. Uh, and you know what? This whole like like you did preface this with we are seven months out. Like things can change, but things don't often change from a a, a draft uh, that like a class strength sort of a situation. Like if uh, like if we if you go in. 
Yeah, it really doesn't. It's like you're seven months out, you're a year out, sometimes a year and a half out. You get a pretty good idea, like how deep the draft is, you know, where it might fall off. And, and I think at this point, you know, if you're looking ahead, if you got to choose and they don't, but if you got to choose, I could see why you wouldn't. You you definitely wouldn't. It, even if you just think next year's draft is 15 or 20% better, that could mean a player getting to you at five next year that you wouldn't get out of the top two or three this year or at eight next year that right. you wouldn't get out of the top two or three this year. So unless you're getting the, you know, one of those first couple of picks. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting. Uh, is, yeah. Are there other clubs you, that, uh, that that have a decent shot to get a top six pick. Uh, you mentioned the Angels. Uh, you mentioned the White Sox. You mentioned uh, the Cardinals with uh, the fifth pick. Um, are there any other clubs that are are uh, are paying teams? You mentioned the uh, uh, the competitive balance tax and the teams that pay into it. You do that once and you drop. Um, and the teams that receive it, it ha- you have to do it twice and then you drop the third year. But are there any other of the paying the bigger market type clubs like the White Sox and the Angels, or is it just those those two, maybe three, depending on where the Cardinals land? It is. So the Cardinals are a payer. So they okay. will see their pick fall to at least pick 10. And the interesting thing about this draft is it, it the way it shakes out. Um, let me read you the top nine chances to land a lottery pick. Oakland, Kansas City. Colorado, they're the top three with 17% chance, 18% chance each. Um, White Sox, Cardinals, Angels, Mets, Pirates, Cleveland. Out of those nine teams, only Kansas City, Colorado, and Cleveland will not be penalized in 2025 if they land a top six pick. So what that basically means is... 2025's draft order is going to be chaos. We could see <laughs> five teams all shift down to the 10th pick in 2025 and then reorder themselves based on their record from 2024. So mm-hmm. this could all end up with like a team having the sixth best odds to have the number one pick in 2025 end up having the best odds to have the number one pick in 2025 because everyone ahead of them shifted down. Right. Now, the and, team and, a lot, and that's going to open that. it up for some clubs that pick down in the teens a lot. Teams that pick Big like time. 14 to, to 18, that's really where that opens that up and shifts everybody north. That's where it becomes Look really, at it. If really we were interesting. To use, if we were to use 2024 just as an example, and we saw Oakland, Chicago, St. Louis, and the Angels all fall for, all fall to pick 10. And we assume the Mets move down 10 spots because Mm -hmm. they exceeded 277 million. That's five teams that fall plus the nationals who are already at 10. That would move the Boston Red Sox who have the 12th best odds of landing the number one pick up to having a lottery selection in 2024 (laughs) had it kind of all worked out. If it works out that way, I did want to bring up one more team because they probably have the most to gain and the most to lose, and that's the Mets. The Mets currently are projected to land the number seven pick. They have a 5.5% chance of landing the number one pick and a 38% chance of landing a top six pick. Because they went over $277 million in payroll this year, if they don't land a top six pick, their draft pick will fall 10 spots. So if they land the sixth pick, they pick sixth. 
If they land the seventh pick, they pick 17th. And that Ooh. is the difference of, uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, about 1.6 to 1.8 million in your bonus pool, which is a massive amount of money right. in any draft. Wow. Yeah. The Mets currently with a five and a half percent chance to win the lottery. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. A team like the Mets that spends like that, the difference. And, and even in a down, I don't know if you're the Mets, you know, you, you may not care that much. You may not get much of an opportunity to get in the top six, you know, anyway. So you might as well take it when you can get it because the chances, if you're just going to spend, spend, spend like that, the chances you, you know, go 75 and 87 and, and end up in, uh, it, you know, with a decent chance to get into the lottery. Like right now, what are their, their chances are seventh best. Uh, I probably wouldn't bet on that anymore if I'm the Mets. I, I plan on being better than that and and being down in the teens or being one of the teams that, you know, have no chance, you know, that that uh, that land 19th yeah. to, the, to the bottom. So if you're the Mets, this is probably one of the rare situations where you're kind of rooting for it because you're not going to get that chance otherwise, right? Like like that's what's different about – and you mentioned Pittsburgh and, and the Angels and, and the Cardinals and the White Sox. Uh, interesting, yeah. A competitive balance tax – like the threshold and teams that pay into it and the teams that, uh, and the teams that receive it. Uh, it's interesting how that's, that's starting to, and, and how it's cut in half, essentially how that, uh, how that impacts not only the draft, um, but obviously those teams, uh, payroll. So interesting. And we'll be draft lottery. That's Tuesday. It's this Tuesday from Nashville, uh, televised at five thirty PM Eastern time, according to, uh, MLB.com, by the way. Um, Good stuff there. The draft. Always on our minds, the draft, Joe. Uh, I'm really interested in it's the top. Illness. I'm really in, it is an illness. I'm really interested in the top of that draft, you know, not just to see, you know, how it how it happens, how how it turns out. And and if the three guys at the top, you know, stay there. And then, you know, it's always interesting to see how teams want to use their pool because they might be the top three talents, but they're not necessarily getting taken top three. But right now, three college guys at the top. Is is that right? Three college guys at the top of your board? I mean, I don't have a high school kid in the top ten right now. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's not a healthy draft right now. I think there are some guys. I think Connor Griffin could um, cement himself as a top five pick by the time we get around to the draft. He has all the mm. tools in the world. Um, but other than that, like the other guy, the other high school guys on the board right now. I mean, there's a, a first baseman. There's a, a PJ Morlando as a first baseman. There's a right-handed high school pitcher named Levi Sterling near the top of my board. I think 24th. So I don't know, man. I just, you know, you look back at the years like 2022 and, uh, you know, you look at Jackson Holiday making that surge from 28, 35, 40, wherever you had him up to the number one pick. I mean, I just don't see that player in this class. I, there's a kid by the name of Carter Johnson out of, I think he's out of Alabama. I'm trying to think, Oxford, Alabama. He's got a pretty swing. He's a shortstop. He's 6'2". Maybe he makes a big jump, but the guys that generally surge, like what they look like, they're just hard to find. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, the, the prep guys do seem to be the most likely to uh, to make that kind of meteoric rise, like you mentioned, Holiday. Like he was always thought of as a first-round guy, but yeah. it took a little bit for him to become like, well, he's definitely going top five and then, and then going where he uh, – where he ultimately went. Uh, interesting. Carter Johnson, I think he's a two-way player in high school. Just a shortstop, Carter Johnson, probably in pro ball. Yeah, yeah, just a just a shortstop. It's a sweet swing. Um, it hasn't been a great performance. Like, here's the thing. Like, Jackson Holiday, his 
junior summer didn't perform very well swinging for the fences kind of tried to blow everybody out of the water right Mm -hmm. carter johnson didn't perform as well as people would like but he's smooth on the dirt it's a really pretty swing you know maybe he kind of unlocks a new gear and and surges up into the top 10 but yeah like i mean uh, finding those guys that have the ceiling to get to that to get to that top 10 threshold they're they're Mm -hmm. tough to find interesting all right so we'll look for that on tuesday we'll get joe's reaction uh on the next episode uh of the podcast uh one of the things i like to think about when the when the winter starts and and while the off season began uh like officially almost a month ago now joe i like to think about like what do i expect to happen this winter um like there's like a couple of things that i definitely expect to happen and there's a couple of things where i'd be like okay we're hearing buzz about this but or we're hearing fans clamor for this, but I'd be really surprised if this happened. I'm just wondering if you have one of each of those things, one thing that that seems possible, but you'd be really surprised if it happened. And then one thing that you'd be really surprised if it didn't happen. And and, and the low hanging fruit for me is the Dodgers adding a an impact starter or two. I'd be shocked if they didn't add at, at, at least one, you know, whether that's Yamamoto or Tani or Cease or Burns or someone like that, you know, that something like that. Um, uh, and, and, and maybe don't steal mine. <laughs> maybe don't. All right. How about we do this? What, what's one thing that I'll will surprise go, you? Let's start with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do that. And then you, I want to hear yours. Okay. Um, for me, I would just be absolutely stunned if the Toronto Blue Jays ended up with Shohei Otani. It's kind of gotten some legs uh, in mm-hmm. national reporting over the last couple of days. Uh, listen, the way I look at it, and Otani is a unicorn and he, you know, kind of opens the parameters of what a team can and should ever do with their payroll. I think we both understand that and agree with that. Right. But the, the the Blue Jays have outwardly come out and said that they have kind of a payroll ceiling in the past. And nothing is... I've never heard anything connecting Shohei Otani to Toronto and playing in Canada. I, I, listen, playing in Canada is not... It's, it's not nothing. As much as you know, Blue Jays fans would like to just say... It's the same as playing in the United States. It's, you know, not customs is different. Travel is different. It's different. I would be stunned if that took place. That's my, that's my, uh, Mm. I would be stunned. So that would be, you'd be stunned about that. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to dig a little deeper for mine. I'm not going to, mine's not about Otani. Mine's not about Yamamoto. Um, I would be absolutely floored if Blake Snell goes to the Mets going to be very specific here there, there's been a lot of links to the Mets and starting pitching uh after they traded Max Scherzer and and Justin Verlander to you know to, to save some money they're covering some of that uh some of those salaries but to save some money which was a brilliant move by the way uh as was the Angels doing what they did to get under the luxury tax threshold uh there uh, over the summer um but the Mets are not going to stand pat uh, they're going to spend if they get the opportunity. They're going to be in on Otani. They're going to be in on Yamamoto. As long as those players have interest, they're going to be willing to spend the money. So I wouldn't be surprised if they – but I would be absolutely floored, no matter what Otani decides or what Yamamoto decides, if Blake Snell specifically lands with the Mets. I just – I can't see it. I can't see it at all. I think Blake Snell's a West Coast guy. Uh, he's familiar in Tampa. I could see him signing with the Yankees before I could see him signing with the Mets. That's one rumor. That's one 
player that's been attached to a team and a team that's been attached to a player that I absolutely cannot see that working out. I cannot see Blake Snell signing with the Mets. I think he would take significantly less money to, to stay out of New York with the Mets. I just, it's gut feel more than anything, but that, that just would, that would blow me away, Joe. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. I, uh, I can't help but think Blake Snell is going to be a giant. I don't know, man. Yeah, it's a fit. What do you think? I mean, I could see Giants. I could see Dodgers. Um, I, I think those two two teams are fits. To be honest with you, if, if Jordan Montgomery doesn't go to Texas, I could see Blake Snell going to the Rangers. I really could. Hmm. I, I could see him going to the Rangers. It's a hundred and fifty million dollar deal plus. Um, like there are teams out there already willing to pay that kind of money. It just depends on what the match is. So, all right. So that's something that would surprise us. You know, if it did happen. What would surprise you if it didn't? I want you to start because I think mine okay. is going to be I think mine is going to be a good transition into the next topic and I want to start there. Ah, uh, okay. Excellent. Good stuff there. Oh, that's a good call there, co-host. Um Hey man. Yeah, so so moving <laughs> away from the obvious one, the, the example I used, the Dodgers getting impact starting pitching cuz I would just be absolutely just that's bonkers. The Dodgers starting next season without Burns, Cease, Yamamoto, or someone like that would be the biggest shocker of the offseason for me. But beyond that, because again, that is the easy one. Uh, I would say the Yankees doing something huge. And and I don't necessarily think that means it's good. I think the Yankees are either getting Juan Soto or they're trading for Dylan Cease, or they're trading for Corbin Burns, or they're signing Yamamoto, or they're signing Otani, or something enormous, something that kind of shakes the baseball world. Yankees, uh, big ticket activity. Uh, if there was none, I would be shocked. Brian if Cashman's on the hot fan, seat, Jason. right? Brian Cashman on the hot uh, yeah, seat, Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. I, I, think you're, I think for sure. I'm curious, if, if you were a Yankees fan, would – Adding Cody Bellinger this winter, like exclusively, only that's the only add. No, would that be, be enough or would that scare you? Um, scare me, no, but that's not enough. I mean, what's the biggest issue on that team? Two biggest issues on the team are, are one, healthy, guys being healthy, right? They've had the talent, but they just haven't stayed healthy. But other than that, it's rotation, right? Like who's the number yeah. two starter on that team right now? It's Garrett Cole and Pray for Rain? Like, like who's the number two guy? Like... <laughs> Like, seriously, I don't know who the number two. I don't think they have a guy that legitimately fits the number two spot. I mean, is that Nestor Cortez? No, um, even though he's flashed, you know, uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, Severino's gone to the Mets. Uh, Clark Schmidt hasn't proven a whole lot yet. Like, like where is the, you know, that's why I think they should be in on every, they should be in on Snell. They should be in on Rodriguez, Eduardo Rodriguez. They should be in on Stroman. They should be in on Yamamoto. They should be in on, I'm, lo I'm leaving somebody out. Um, Cease and Burns and any good pitcher that might be available, the Yankees should be in on because that ballpark, if you're not striking guys out, that ballpark, you're going to give up runs. And and you have to be of that kind of impact ilk of a starting pitcher. And and maybe that's why the, the Yankees might prefer a Corbin Burns over a Dylan Cease because it's one year and it's a little cheaper and it buys you some time to find more long-term answers. But um, you know, they're kind of relying on Carlos Rodon to be healthy because if he's healthy, then there's your number two and you kind of have co-number ones. But you, you certainly can't count on that either. So I would be floored if they didn't do something big, but you're right. That's a really good point. It really can't just be one thing. If they sign Yamamoto, great. What else did you do? 
because that was a very yeah. ordinary roster last year, considering guys are aging. Uh, you don't really know what you're going to get from your sh- second year shortstop. You don't know what you're going to get from Giancarlo Stanton, who's eating up some payroll. Uh, Aaron Judge has had his own injury issues. DJ LeMay, who's older and, and not quite the hitter that he was a couple of years back. Like, there's not a lot of, um, you know, good bets. There's not a lot of high probability guys on that roster. Um, Garrett Cole, like, other than that, do they have a player that's a that's a three win player or better? That's kind of automatic, other than Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole is pretty much automatic. Doesn't have a significant I mean, injury history. Aaron he's Judge really, really... is definitely there if he's healthy. Aaron Judge, but if is he's a, healthy, that's what I mean, though. Like if yeah, he's yeah. healthy, right? So it's it's really tough to man. It's really I can't tough to see. You don't believe in Ben Rortvet. How do you not believe in Ben Rortvet? <laughs> I, I do. I I actually secretly <laughs> have now, you been living in a cave. Out. I'll admit. He is the greatest player of all time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My bad. Brian Cashman's a genius. So this was funny about Cashman, by the way. So I think two or three years ago, I was on Brian Cashman is underrated and gets catches too much, you know, flack. Seriously. That that's where I was. But after the last couple of years, the inactivity, the lack of creativity, the 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 lack of foresight uh, has completely flipped me. I think he should have been fired already. So I'm not saying Cashman gets to spend what he wants, but he can probably trade what he wants. And I'd be floored. I'd be shocked if they didn't do something there. So, um, yeah, that's where I am. Yankees. All right. Let me give you, uh, let me give you two. And the second one is going to lead into our next topic. Well, the first one I think is a little bit more 10,000 feet. I would not be shocked if the Detroit Tigers found a way to add 30 or 35 million dollars to their 2024 payroll mm-hmm. historically the tigers have been a team that spends a lot of money and yeah. they're in a really nice market and they've got some young pieces and they've got a decent amount of young pitching if it can stay healthy right um i think they ranked in the bottom third of the league in 19th 20th 21st in payroll last year mm-hmm. uh, i think scott harris has kind of got a window now that he can do some spending and it does listen it doesn't have to be at the top of the market but right. if you're the Detroit Tigers and you can bring in, uh, you know, a Josh Hader or you know, just got, shorten up the games or mm. do something like that, I would. Not, I just feel like the Tigers have not been spoken on quite enough this winter mm. as a team that historically has kind of played at the big boys table. Yeah, they uh, they went out and got Kenta Maeda. They picked up Mark Canna. Mm-hmm. Those are those are more mm-hmm. floor moves. Raise the floor, get some stability. Um, out there, and it may come at the perfect time. We saw Spencer Torkelson, who was the number one pick a few years back, uh, who I was—I'm not a huge fan of. I never thought he was the best prospect in baseball, but starting to hit, starting to show what he can do. We—I think we like Riley Green. It's one of my favorite young players in the game. Uh, Javier Baez, whatever he can give you is kind of a bonus at this point. But they have some other guys coming up. Colt Keith might be able to make an impact for them this year. It, it seems like if—and here's another if—but if. If Tariq Skubal can be can give them twenty eight to thirty starts, and they can add to that rotation, like they're not, you don't even have to sit around and wait for the Casey Mises and the Matt Mannings to be healthy. You can do some serious yeah. damage. So uh, the the Tigers adding payroll, yeah, right now they have eighty seven million dollars committed for uh, for twenty twenty four. So there's a lot think that's of going to be. You know what were they? I think they ended last year at about one hundred and fifteen or one hundred and twenty. Like I would be surprised if they didn't yeah, push 40, that closer full, to one thirty. Yeah, full forty man at the end of the year was one twenty one and change. 
That's I would full be stunned if they there. weren't close to 135, 140 this yeah. upcoming season. Which which puts them 45 to $50 million away just for 2024. Yeah. And think about That's two big ticket players. Think yeah. about it. Uh, the Twins have holes. They, they've, they've got holes to fill. Um, the Guardians, it looks like they're going to have pitching, but where are they going to get any runs? That was one of the, right. that was, I think, the worst offense in baseball last year or close to it. Um, the White Sox are tearing it down. Like, this is a good opportunity for Detroit to kind of put its hat back in the ring and, and establish itself as, as one of the premium organizations that's run in baseball. There's just, there's no, the Tigers have no business being this bad. And I think they'll be back up uh, where yeah. they're supposed to be. That's a good All call. right. So let me throw you this last one. Let me throw mm-hmm. you this last one. Um, it would not shock me if Alex Bregman is wearing different colors in 2024. Uh, I think if the Astros were to move him, I don't think they would get a whole lot for him, to be totally honest. I'm not saying they wouldn't get anything for him, mm-hmm. but he's only got a year left on his deal. I think he's owed about $30 million bucks this year, and he's frankly probably not a $30 million player away from Minute Maid Park. That being said, they're going to have to decide if they want to pay Bregman in 2025. Mm-hmm. Jose Altuve is coming up. He, they're going to have to pay him. Justin Verlander is coming up. I don't know whether or not that reunion is going to take place, but that farm system is extremely thin right now, and they've gone through quite a turn the front office upside down over the last two mm-hmm. seasons. They've lost mm-hmm. a lot of talent, and Dana Brown is in there now, and he just does things differently. So it would not surprise me if Alex Bregman has moved for, you know, I'm not even going to throw out any ideas, but maybe a a double A pitcher with some upside and a, a, you know, a a Vaughn Grissom type of player who could play third base, something like that. Sure. Uh, Alex Bregman will be 30 at the end of March. Uh, he, um, he was a 4.3 win player by F wars, uh, measurements. He hit 263, 363, 441 with 25 home runs last year in 161 games. Um, and you're right, like he's making a little bit of money um, in uh, in 2024. But that's been a it's been a pretty good contract for the uh, for the Astros. And I'm pulling up his deal right now. He will make 28 and a half million. Uh, and there's no option here. This is a clean at the end of the year. He will be a free agent. Um, but I'm glad you brought this up because the Houston Astros have been a team that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And you mentioned uh, if Bregman, Verlander, and Altuve are going to be free agents, the Astros have decisions to make. Do we extend any of these players or all of these players or two of these players? And if not, what are we doing for 2025? And Joe, if, if you're Dana Brown here, you don't want to just go through the season and then worry about it next November, December, you'd like to maybe get out front a little bit. So maybe moving a Bregman helps you get out front a little bit, but there's probably another opportunity or two on this roster to get out front, maybe extend your window uh, beyond signing free agents. Uh, and that's probably, and, and again, I, I'm just going to full disclosure. This is a guy you and I talked about before I hit the record button. Framber Valdez is in an interesting situation with the Houston Astros. This guy, I mean, yeah. we know how good he is, one of the better left-handers uh, in the American League in all of baseball. I think he's got two straight four-win seasons. Uh, he's 30 years old, does not have a long-term deal, has two years of control left. He's made 31 starts 
two two years in a row, through 200 innings in 2022 and 198 last year. That is an innings eating left hander. That's a that's a number two in a lot of rotations. That's a really good number mm-hmm. three in a great rotation. And in some rotations, he's your number one. This is a really good starting pitcher that they don't have locked up right now, Joe. You could do some damage on the trade market for Framber Valdez, and I think Dylan Cease's price will tell us what Framber Valdez might be worth. Yeah, that, like I like I mentioned, that farm system needs some help. They need an infusion in younger talent. I, there's just you know you're not going to blow this window wide open with Spencer or Giddy for the next. 10 years right Right. um and one guy that we haven't brought up that certainly plays a big part in all this is kyle tucker like kyle tucker is up after 2025 and that's a 32 million 34 million dollar player like he's a five win outfielder who's five tools Uh, he's not going to be cheap and he's young too i think Mm -hmm. he debuted well he was kicked around uh through part-time play like age 21 22 23 but Mm -hmm. he's going to be a free agent at probably age 29 uh, he's not going to be cheap. So, um, yeah, yeah man, like I, I think the Astros, I, I think the Astros are in a position right now where they've kind of got to shuffle the deck a little bit and decide who's going to stick around, who's going to be around mm-hmm. in 2026 and 2027. And, um, you know, maybe the cards that don't fit in the long-term future are, are moved to kind of try and extend this competitive window because we've been talking about it. Jason, we've been talking about it since what? shoot march of 2021 mm-hmm. like the window is closing the window is shutting they didn't have draft picks everyone got expensive the astros path to 95 wins is is a lot more narrow and i think at some point you just have to say if we want a chance of this thing being a thing in 2026 2027 2028 we got to make some decisions because they're not going to pick high enough in any draft in the next couple of years. It doesn't look like at least, you know, last year, this year, next year to to get those two, three players like the Nationals did with Strasburg and Harper to completely turn your your fortunes around. They're not going to have that opportunity and their farm system might be. I don't know, Joe, this is something you're working on now for uh, for January, February. That farm system might be one of the very worst in baseball. Twenty nine after this. There you go. After after making those trades from for uh, uh, making the trade for Justin Verlander, I mean that was uh, that ate up a, a good portion of of what they had uh, at the top of their uh, the top of their farm system. They're like that's a, they're a unique player development system over there, but it's there's not magic. You have to have the talent over there to to develop. So let me throw something at you really quick. Uh, beyond Bregman, Altuve, and Verlander, who are three. Uh, pending free agents they would be free agents after the 2024 season unless some sort of extension is worked out if i gave you the two names framber valdez and kyle tucker and said based on the the potential trade return you see based on the value to my organization in houston if i'm if you're the gm and and you're the owner there and and you're running things if you're trading one of them which one of them are you trading in this particular market? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I think shoot, you can make an argument for either one, lot. right? With the, with I all think the you can that's too. Going around. Yeah. I think just because of the value of a position player and a five-tool position player and two years of control and the fact that there's just no bats, Kyle Tucker is way more valuable than Cody Bellinger, and it's not mm. even close. Um, because of that, I think Kyle Tucker probably nets you a better return. I think Kyle Tucker probably nets you something in the ballpark of what Luis Robert would get you. Probably not quite that much, but it would be in the conversation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but those but same things, Joe, those, those same things suggest you shouldn't trade him. Exactly. Because he, yeah, exactly. he's that if, rare, if it's going to be that Houston, much harder to replace. Yeah, I mean, if I was Houston, I would try and extend Kyle Tucker ASAP. Mm-hmm. And I would I would probably try and move. Um, yeah, I would try try and move a pitcher, I think. Yeah, now that even though they're they're low on pitching, it seems to be a little bit easier, at least like today, tomorrow, this winter, replacing Framber Valdez if you moved him, than it would be uh replacing Kyle Tucker. But man, if you trade Kyle Tucker and you get the right guys back, I mean, you could set yourself up for, for 2025 and 2026 really, really well. You could end up being in a better position than you are with Kyle Tucker, barring an extension. Extending him is, is by far the best thing. And if you're, if you're out there listening and you're thinking, why, why are these guys drooling all over Kyle Tucker? Why the hell not? 24, 25, and 26 years old. He's been a 4.7, 4.8, and 4.9 win player. He's averaged 144 games a season. Last year, he had 284, 29 bombs, put up a, uh, uh, if you're a WRC Plus fan, and I am, a 140 WRC Plus. That's the second time in three years he's been over 140. And in his slightly down year, he was a 129. He's 26 years old. He's going to be 27 in January. So you're right, Joe. He'll be a 29-year-old free agent. Locking up Kyle Tucker, I would imagine, (laughs) is a priority for the Astros. And if it's not, I'm a little bit puzzled left-handed bat with power look at all the contacts here we're talking these conversations we're we're hearing around the league is you know these high strikeout guys in philadelphia and and minnesota and seattle and and teams trying to go away from that kyle tucker career strikeout rate of 16 percent. it was under 14 percent a year ago this guy's really really good and maybe one of the more underrated players in all of baseball right now joe yeah you know how many uh 4.4 let alone 4.6, 4.7, 4.8. You know how many 4.4 F4 seasons Cody Bellinger has? One. And that was his and He's MVP been in the year. league a very long time. Yeah. yeah, it was a seven and a half win season. Like, I'm not going to take anything away from the guy, sure. but Kyle Tucker consistently has been better and better and better. And he's not even really, I mean, he's kind of just walking into the prime of his career. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think this kid has, uh, <laughs> I'm talking like a scout, I think he has five and a half win potential written all over him for the next few years and uh, he's got I, for, for me at least he's got an outside shot of, of going to the hall of fame i think he could get to 60 f4 yeah that's crazy speaking of that by the way if if jose altuve retired after this season is he a hall of famer for you without yeah without question yeah it's, i think he i mean fine. i wouldn't vote for him i wouldn't vote right. for him because of the scandal like <laughs> sure. i wouldn't right but uh the the numbers i mean the numbers don't lie but let me ask you this like i think the bigger the bigger issue with moving kyle tucker for me would be you look at that lineup and all of a sudden for the future, yeah, you'd have great prospects coming in and those would fit somewhere in there. But uh, all of a sudden you're relying on an, an Alec, uh, a Bregman that's out of his prime, uh, an Altuve that's going to be, how old is Altuve going to be, 35? 107, he's, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's 33. He's been, around, he's been around 25 years, but he's, he's, he's 33. He won't be 34 until early May. Yeah. And I know we talk about like how the body and everything projects like five, seven, one eighty does not lend well into your mid thirties. Trust me. I know (laughs) (laughs) I'm aware he's sore every day. Yeah. (laughs) He had another great year though, man. I mean, 
Yeah. You know, 2022, he put up a 164 WRC plus, almost a seven-win season. He was a four-win player this past year, despite the fact that he only played 90 games. Um, he hit uh, he hit over 300 for the second year in a row. Uh, I think he put up his second best on – he did his second best on base percentage of his entire career uh, this past year. But if you're looking for potential signs – I won't call them signs, but potential signs – that maybe Jose Altuve is slowing down just a little bit. Well, for one, the injury and the strikeout rate. The strikeout rate did jump 3% this past year. That's something just to keep an eye on. I'm not saying it's definitely a sign, um, but uh, but it could be. And he's not one of those guys, Joe, that goes out and, and puts up like 48% hard hit rates. He's a guy that just makes a ton of contact, and a lot of his contact is medium or hard. He just doesn't hit tricklers to the shortstop and pop up a whole lot. Just a lot of solid contact. It's something to keep an eye on uh, as uh, Altuve gets into his mid-30s there in Houston. Um, if you're Houston, are you aggressive in uh, in the pitching market? Because we've been talking about maybe trading Valdez uh, or extending him too. But Justin Verlander is, again, he's, he's older than Jose Altuve. And Altuve is triple digits already, as we just mentioned. Uh, what do you do if you're the Astros this winter before we uh, before we get through the offseason? What what would you do if you're running the Astros? Are you focusing on pitching or are you focusing on turning Valdez and Bregman or even Tucker into something that kind of extends your window? Well, I mean, they've, they've got to add pitching of some regard, right? I mean, next year, even if you have to assume Justin Verlander is going to deal with just general soreness as a 41-year-old, 40-year-old pitcher. So what do they've got? They've got Justin Verlander. They've got Framber Valdez. I don't know what they're going to do with Jose Arquiti and Luis Garcia. I mean, they flip-flop those guys back and forth in and out of the in and out of the rotation. I don't know if they're both going to be uh, mm -hmm. options out of the rotation this year. Right. Lance McCullers is coming back. You do have Christian Javier and JP France played a pretty big role. I think mm -hmm. you're probably ultimately going to see Hunter Brown in the bullpen to start 2020, uh, 2024. I think they could probably do without going on the higher end of the starting pitching market, but you know, the, the Astros seem like the perfect type of a fit for a guy like Seth Lugo, who can play the hybrid role. He can come yeah. out of the bullpen. How about Marcus Stroman? Uh, so yeah. How about Marcus Stroman? I think that's Houston? too rich. I really? think it's too rich because I think Marcus, well, I mean, Marcus Stroman's going to get at least four years. You would think he's going to get three or four years, and I, I just not, don't know but if not, they can commit. But not twenty-five million a year, right? Like he's not getting Sonny Gray money. I mean, I think Strowman could get four and eighty. Do you not? I mean, but that's five million dollars less than Sonny Gray got on AAV. So if he goes four years, I could see that. But we're not talking about a hundred million dollars, is what I'm saying, right? No, but I just mean if you're going, if you're throwing twenty million a year on the payroll through twenty twenty-seven. Mm -hmm. I think that just has implications with some of the guys that we just talked about. You know, are you going to add Marcus Stroman because you plan on uh, moving Framber? You know, that would make sense. That mm -hmm. would make sense. But you have to you have to have room to retain some of this talent in 2026, I think. Although if Verlander's coming off the books, and I would imagine he is, I would imagine there's no extension for Verlander. Um, that's a lot of money off the books. And if you're not going to bring back yeah. Bregman, that's a lot of money off the books. So I think your payroll looks fine moving forward. If you go add a couple of 20 plus million dollar guys, I don't know. I wouldn't go any higher than Stroman, but I think if I'm the Astros and not that I wouldn't have interest in Lugo, uh, and a guy like that, because I love guys that can swing back and forth. And one of my most underrated bullpen, uh, targets out there for any team that's looking for any kind of bullpen help is, uh, is, is Junis. 
is Jacob Junis because he can swing yeah, back and forth yeah. and that slider and he can start for you a couple of times and then go back to the bullpen and kind of swing back and forth. Uh, very underrated. I think you can get him for a couple of million dollars. But um, if you're Houston, though, like, man, you, I'm not relying on Urquidy or France or uh, or Garcia coming off injury. Yeah. Yeah, or you know, and and I guess my my big question is, what do I think Hunter Brown actually is? Am I convinced that he needs to be in the bullpen? Because if that's the case, I'm setting my sights on on the Stroman types and not settling for uh, for Seth Lugo. I'm going for a guy who I know can give me 25 to 28 starts, not a guy who has a a limited track record of doing that. I, I think I would go a little more uh, a little bigger with with a guy like Stroman, not necessarily that uh, Stroman. And maybe maybe they get in the market for you know somebody that's uh, that's a trade candidate too off the uh, the top of the market. There are lots of teams out there that have these mid rotation types uh, that they're looking to dump because now they're becoming arbitration uh, you know expensive. So I wonder if Houston gets involved in that as well. I think the Astros are a fascinating fascinating team this offseason because I just don't know what to expect from Dana Brown. We yeah. don't. He's a scouting director to us. We, we don't know Dana Brown, the GM yet. I guess we're going to learn, right? Yeah. And another thing, and we can we can end on this, but it is kind of interesting that I think if you re-sign Jose Altuve past 2023, mm-hmm. he's probably going to take a pay cut, right? I mean, they're not going to sign a 35-year-old second baseman to more than $26 million a year. He's making $26 million this year. I, maybe it's two years and $60 million. I don't know, but I would be surprised if he got yeah, you wouldn't a think big it would payday. Be- you wouldn't think it would be a hundred plus million. You wouldn't think it would be. No, I wouldn't be surprised. It'd be less. Right. It's got to be three years or less. I would think. But they gave Jose Abreu three and fifty eight. So although that although although not Dana Brown, Dana Abreu? Brown didn't. Um, he's a little bit little bit younger than Justin Verlander, so he's like ninety eight. <laughs> <laughs> the delay yeah, there kills. <laughs> the delay there. <laughs> the delay there. I think he's thirty four. I think Abreu is thirty four now. Um. Yeah, we'll yeah, I mean, uh, we'll see how he. I don't know. Altuve is going to be thirty five, and he's going to be thirty five in twenty twenty five. I would probably offer him something like three years and seventy million. You know, give him twenty three million a year. Right. Um, so I don't you, know. You, so you'd give him twenty three million dollars a year for his age thirty five, thirty six, and thirty seven seasons. Listen, he's coming off a four and a half win season. If he does four and a half wins again next year, he's not going to come in cheaper than that. Right. But yeah, and by the way, I was the way off is on, on the Jose. rise. And I just, you know, I was way off on Jose Abreu. I don't know why I said he was thirty-four. He's going to be thirty-seven in January. He's got two years so and almost. Him, yeah, he he's got two years and yeah. almost forty million dollars left on that deal. Yeah, yeah, similar. I mean, he's a first baseman, twenty million bucks. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, no, I think, yeah. uh, I, I think, I don't, I don't think Altuve is going to get twenty-six million a year AAV for three years after next season, but we'll see. Yeah, interesting. He's still been uh, really, really good. It's been interesting to see how the Astros handle things under Dana Brown. Uh, they have a new scouting director there in Houston as well. He's redoing. They have a new pitching coach uh, over the last year or so. Uh, things are different in Houston, and and seeing them try to hang on here is going to be really interesting uh, to learn which route they want to take. Do they want to be aggressive with veterans? And it kind of seems like they set themselves up to do that too, Joe, with that trade last year. Or was that just kind of a swan song? I guess we'll learn here in the next couple of weeks. Probably see how uh, see they how gave up a lot for a swan song, man. They yeah, gave up they, a lot for a swan song. They did, they did, and it looks like the swan song could be this year. We'll see. Guys are getting older, man. You just never know when guys are going to start falling off a cliff. You just never know. We saw it with the Brady last year at 35, 36 years old. So uh, we'll see what happens. Not that I'm expecting it from Altuve, but we'll see what happens with those guys and Verlander and 
and uh, there's lots of decisions to make uh, in Houston. Uh, parting shot, Joe. What's, what what else is on your mind as the winter meetings? Oh, I've got a parting way? shot. You got a parting shot. Uh, I feel like this is going to be personal. <laughs> it's at you, which is fair. Which is fair. It That's is fair. at you. All right. All right. This up? is going to spark some uh, conversation. <laughs> uh, this has been eating at me for two weeks since the last time we podcasted, and I wanted to bring it up with you live on the air. Okay. Uh, <laughs> last week or two weeks ago, actually, I think it was after we were done recording. You said. The WSU, by the way, congrats to you, Dub. A great season, no sure. doubt about it. It hurts yep. me to say that, but yep. you said that WSU's president and athletic director dug themselves this grave by not being proactive and getting themselves to a new conference. Sure. I have been, that's been eating at me for a week and a half okay. because I okay. look Re- at it like this. Really quick before you answer, did they get themselves okay. into another conference? Did they? Did they do that? No. Okay. No, but let me let me let me explain the analogy. I think of WSU. I'm not naive. I know that WSU is on a much smaller playing field, a much smaller financial ecosystem, a much smaller sure. town. Mm-hmm. But I look at it like this: you play baseball mm-hmm. from kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. You put with all your friends. You're all the same size. You're all tiny, right? You're all running around, just doing mm-hmm. the best. And WSU's tiny. And they're competing and they're keeping up with everyone. Oregon State too. Fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. And then you hit ninth grade. And suddenly, all the other kids got a lot bigger. And you Mm -hmm. can still perform. Mm -hmm. You're still a baller. You're still Mm -hmm. keeping up. But suddenly, you're not getting picked to go on teams. And you're not getting picked by the high school teacher to play on the team because too small. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good analogy for what happened with WSU. They still are a good team. They're a good program, but they haven't gotten the respect because they're such a smaller program. And I think to what the makes them a good what I've what makes them a good program? Out, what makes them a good program? I'm just talking. I'm I'm talking specifically wins. Just specifically wins. That's all. I'm talking seven straight years with a bowl game. I'm talking being a force in the Pac-12 for the better part of ten years. That's all I'm saying. Three Rose Bowls. Um, that's that's my thing. So I, I guess. The frustration for me is, my parting shot is, I think fans think that WSU's athletic director and their president didn't do enough to get in front of this, to get Mm -hmm. themselves into a position where they can get into a big conference. My counter to that is, they've been trying for years to do anything. They've been trying not to have the Apple Cup on Friday after Thanksgiving in Pullman for 15 years. Mm -hmm. But when you're matched up chest to chest with financial behemoths in a conference that you just financially and socioeconomically mm-hmm. do not fit in with because they didn't mm-hmm. and it's shown with the fact and they, that they and they, are, and they never have right the they never and they never they really never have. have right okay they have been a beneficiary of the schools that they've competed with there's no doubt about it mm-hmm. they're an agriculture school no doubt about it um but to think that they didn't try to do enough to save the Pac-12 and to save their status in a big conference, it uh, kind of bugs me. They were always so, they were always on the chopping block. They've been on the chopping block for 15 years. So here's the thing: I didn't say they didn't try. I said they didn't do enough because enough means they would have done something. Like something would have got done. And I didn't say a big conference. I meant in a better position than they're in right now. That's why I do not feel. I feel sorry yeah. that people are going to lose jobs. I feel I hate the fact that this whole you know transformation and football dictates football is king is going to hurt non-football programs 
at a lot of these schools, not just Washington State and Oregon State, but even the Arizona's and maybe even Washington, Oregon, USC, UCLA as well. I hate that part of it. I do. But I don't feel yeah. sorry for the football program at Oregon State or Washington State at all because, like, maybe they couldn't get into the Big Ten or the Big 12 even. But is there an, was there maybe an opportunity for them to get themselves into a better situation than they're sitting in right now with no – you know, direct conference, uh, you know, affiliation. Yes, there was. And I think they just shot too high or hoped that they sat around and hope both schools sat around to some degree and hoped that this just wouldn't come to fruition so they could stay in the Pac-12. Because again, like I, and I do understand this, staying at the, like keeping the Pac-12 together would have been better for Oregon State and Washington State. But where's the backup plan? Where's the foresight to go out yeah. and say, okay, if this doesn't happen, get us into the, you know, whatever it is, you know, the, the Mountain West Conference or whatever. Uh, and I understand it's not the same and it's not nearly as lucrative as the Pac-12, but the Pac-12 is gone. And so it was be in the Midwest Conference or, or or the Mountain West Conference or whatever, or be sitting out there as basically kind of an independent. Like what what is, and I realize they can schedule, you know, work out schedules and play whoever, but they're not in a great spot right now. And that's because they didn't make something happen at the end of the day. I, I hate think, what those I other think, schools did. I hate the court I, thing. I'm not, I'm not I hate I'm that not Washington about, went I'm after the money. About, I'm not talking about the school presidents or the like the program as a object. I'm not talking about the athletic director. I'm talking mm. about the fans. I'm talking about the alumni. Sure. I'm talking about the the average Joe like me who went to the school and um, left on the side of the street without mm -hmm. a conference to root for. And I think, you know, to your point, the situation that they're in, I think the Mountain West is a foregone conclusion. Like WSU and Oregon State are going to hold enough financial clout after all mm -hmm. this is said and done to right. reverse merge as many teams as they want from the Mountain West to keep probably what will end up being a Pac-8, maybe mm -hmm. a Pac-10 going in the future. So their financial like future is gonna be much more anemic, but they're gonna they're gonna have a conference. They're gonna be just fine. But but My probably not is, next year, right? But probably not next year. Probably not well, for no, twenty twenty four. Next year they've right? already agreed to play. They've already agreed to play six games against the Mountain West. They've already got mm -hmm. their schedule filled out. Like they, they've got that all figured out, and they're probably gonna walk with walk away with so much damn money from. Mm -hmm the University of Washington going to the CFP and the bowl game revenue that comes into the Pac-12 and just collecting all that, right. that they're going to be fine financially. The, the, the frustration for me just as a Cougar fan is it seems as though, I, I, I don't know, it's just I, I, I wish there were more fans of the University of Washington. And I understand that it's a, it's a rivalry, of course. I wish they would have a little more compassion for the fact that the rival school, their in-state public rival, is losing everything essentially while they're going on to bigger and better things. Wait, and you just said that's probably did, just didn't you just say that Washington State was going to be fine financially? They are, but the fans so aren't. The fans okay. are. We we're losing. We're losing. We're losing a hundred and twenty years of football tradition, and it's going to go on. We're going to play Boise State. We're going to play San Jose State, San Diego State. We're going to go to Hawaii. Like, mm -hmm. we're going to be fine. But, like, a guy like me, 33 years old, all I've ever known is playing up and down I 5. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a tough pill to swallow. And it's a bit of a, I'll just give you a, a quick, and then we'll move on from this and end this podcast. <laughs> um, 
Washington State is like the only thing that I've ever known. It's my both my parents went there, my grandparents went there, my cousins went there, and I grew up a Coug. I went to every single home game, six hours with my dad, every game. It was the only school I was ever going to go to. And a ton of that pride comes from the fact I'm going to a Pac-12 school. I'm going to go to a Pac-12 school, get a Pac-12 education. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live that college dream. It almost feels for naught at this point. And as an, as an identity, I struggle with the fact that, you know, I'm going to have kids and I have to wonder are my kids going to be as invested as I was in going to a Mountain West school? That's a tough pill to swallow. That's a tough, it's a tough change in just, I guess, ethos and identity. So, sure, sure. In my defense, in my defense, it's not the fans that I don't give a crap about. It's not the fans at all. It's not that. And, and, I, and, I, was, that. and I was actually on Washington state and Oregon state side with all the court stuff. Like, look, like here's how it's written. You're not a part of the Pac-12 anymore as of the end of the season. Go away. Like, you know, that that was that whole thing was garbage. Yeah. But yeah, and it was just aimed at this at the school and and maybe mostly at the people running the school and running the 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 football program, the people that had uh you know maybe some opportunity to improve their situation. Um I don't know. Like I got to be honest with you, like Cal and Stanford to the ACC, right? Like that's a thing. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Washington State and Oregon State are far more interesting football programs than Cal and Stanford really ever are. I mean, Stanford had their day I with Harbaugh, so, had their day with it, – it, it's I would Washington so State rather I, be – I would so rather be in the position of Washington State and Oregon State right now than I would be at all interested in being a fan as a Cal Bear. Right. I've I don't actually, know what I've actually tweeted hell. this to you. I've actually tweeted this to you. As what a you, fan – as a fan of a team that's going to the Big Ten, I'm jacked about it too. The idea that you're going to play, you know, Michigan and Ohio State and Wisconsin and Penn State, you know, you're going to play probably two of those teams a year, if not three. Um, I love the idea. I think it just ups the ante for everybody. So I, I love it. I'm, I'm jacked about it. But, uh, and, I, and again, I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago. I would trade if I was the Big Ten, like Rutgers and, you know, and, and, and Maryland for Oregon State and Washington State in a freaking heartbeat. In a heartbeat, I would yep. trade those. I mean, it, it, it might it, happen. If, if it's really all about I money mean, and it's not. all about the best football, yeah. I mean, I get wanting Rutgers in it because it's New York and and Maryland because I guess Baltimore's in Maryland. Then. Like, but man, yeah, yeah like right. Like, I don't, I don't from a football standpoint, not even close. Not even close. Washington State, Oregon State yeah. are far more interesting. Uh, and make far more sense, even though there'd be more travel, because then it would be easier to for USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington to continue rivalries, but also just play each other and cut down the travel a little bit. The first time yeah. Washington travels to Rutgers, I'm going to giggle because it's stupid. <laughs> it makes no sense yeah. at all. Like Or Rutgers to Washington, this. to be honest with you. Projecting out four years. Let's go four years out. Um, Cal and Stanford will be in the Pac-10. They just will. Like the ACC is going to fold. I'm sorry. With what happened yeah. to Florida State today, it's with how pissed great. off Clemson <laughs> is, uh, I think South Carolina, South Carolina in the SEC? Yes. I'm trying to remember now. Yes. North Carolina um, yeah. is in the so ACC. They're, they're fine. Yeah. yeah. North Carolina, like the ACC is going to maybe not fold, but greatly diminish. And the mm. fact that Cal and Stanford took TV fractional deals to right. travel across the country and the ACC only has to make it to Dallas 
to play those home games. Yeah. There's no way that's going to survive that. No way. So I think they end up back in the pac 10 with Washington state, Oregon state, and four to probably just four to six other teams on the West coast. Um, But yeah, man, I, I, uh, I'll leave it at this. (laughs) I don't know. I'll leave it at this. I really will. I don't think there's much more Kirk Schultz and Pat Chun at Washington state or the leadership at Oregon state could have done. I don't think there was any merry-go-round at all feasible that they end up in one of these power four conferences, big 10, big 12. I don't think they could ever latch their wagon to Oregon and Washington. That was unrealistic. I don't think so either. Yep. I never thought that. So never thought that, never thought that at all. So yeah, I mean, although although it should have been feasible, it should have been feasible, but I agree that it wasn't. Uh, I do, uh, I do hope those programs and I do hope those rivalries live and it does sound like, uh, they both will because, uh, getting rid of, uh, Oregon, Oregon state and Washington, Washington state would be an absolute travesty. Um, in a, even in a year when one team was a top five team in the country and Washington state really struggled that you saw how close the apple cup was that happens over the, you, you've paid attention to this too. You've watched it as an alum, like. It doesn't matter what that record is when you play rivalry games because, I mean, occasionally it's a blowout, but sometimes the final score does not make a whole lot of sense, and, and that's the uh, that's Can we agree on one thing and then get out of here? I don't think so. I never hope, to, I, I never hope anyone loses their jobs. No, but that's I garbage. I am so yeah. glad. Never, I, I never am so glad the Pac-12, the Pac-12 referees, I'm very glad <laughs> that they are going to be refereeing somewhere other somewhere than this <laughs> It's been so <laughs> awful for a decade, and nobody stands for it. I just, oh, that is that'll a, be nice not to look forward to on Saturdays. That's, that is a perfect, perfect parting shot. A little, uh, a little football to end the FSS Plus podcast. Hey, uh, Joe, thanks. We'll talk next week, man. All right, buddy. So just chill to the next episode.